Chapter Six of Upper Canada Sketches by Thomas Conant. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Six, Land of the Forest and the Rock, of Dark Blue Lake and Mighty River, of Mountains reared aloft to mock the storm's career, the lightning's shock, my own green land for ever. Adapted. Voices of discontent had been heard for many months previous to the actual outbreak of the rebellion of 1837 in Upper Canada. Meetings were held, at which the wrongs inflicted on the country by the family compact were discussed. Responsible government had not then been granted to Canada by the imperial government. Prior to the rebellion, the country was under the rule and the heel of an oligarchy who had foisted themselves upon the people. It would be impossible and is indeed unnecessary for me to refer to the causes of the outbreak in Upper Canada. Most persons' minds have already been fully made up pro and con on the subject. It is not my purpose to do more than relate such incidents as came within the notice of my father and grandfather, or had an influence on their lives or surroundings. The elections of candidates for the legislature were conducted differently from what they now are under responsible government, a change hastened by the rebellion, and finally secured by the able report of Lord Durham. At Newcastle, Durham County, an election was being held, ostensibly to elect a member of the Parliament. For one whole week electors were asked to ascend a flight of steps to a booth erected in the open air, and there verbally announced the name of the candidate for whom they would vote. The family compact took good care that all timorous ones voted for them, or did not vote at all, if an opposition candidate was nominated. A participant in that election told of a wagon load of green shillelaghs brought to the grounds for the purpose of gently, question mark, persuading the electors to vote for the government nominee whiskey could be had for the asking without money and without price and ab libidum the ordinary price of whiskey at that date and for many years later was ten pence per gallon fights were of hourly occurrence during the election and for six days a pandemonium of riot ensued it is superfluous to add that the government candidate won the contested seat as he did very generally in other constituencies throughout the province. William Lyon Mackenzie, the hard-headed little Scotch reformer who was several times elected and expelled the House, exposed these acts in his paper, and some of the sons of the compact threw his type into York, Toronto, Bay. The destruction of his type and the consequent revulsion of feeling secured justice and damages assessed for the loss being paid to Mackenzie from the fines exacted of the lads who committed the depredation, enabled him to continue the publication of his paper, and through it rouse his sympathizers into open rebellion. No government over English-speaking subjects has yet succeeded long in curtailing the liberty of the press. In Canada this remark was as true as elsewhere." My father at this time was captain of one of his fleet of ships, and was not on shore to participate in the excitement. Freights that fall, 1837, were exceedingly high on Lake Ontario. 
salt for instance was one dollar a barrel from sodas new york to whitby upper canada that being the nearest port to oshawa his home four miles away flour was one dollar a barrel from oshawa and whitby to kingston it was an exceedingly mild winter and succeeding so well he did not put his ship into winter quarters in november as is the custom on the great lakes but continued his trips until the day after christmas when he reached whitby unbent his sails and stowed everything for the winter a perilous voyage many persons who occupied good positions in upper canada even if not in actual rebellion were mistrusted as sympathizers with the patriots they were hunted by the compact's forces and driven from their homes being forced to find shelter in the forests and in barns life to them finally became unbearable and they sought some means of leaving the province a small schooner the industry happened to be laid up for the winter in one of the ports on the north shore of lake ontario the owner was besought to bend his sails to the masts and take the patriots across the lake to oswego new york such a trip as crossing lake ontario in midwinter by a sailing craft is a most perilous thing to do and naturally the owner of the vessel hesitated to take the great risk to his vessel and to his own life as well it was thought that the vessel might make the outlet of the oswego river at oswego new york and therefore effect a landing recollect that there were no tugs in those days to tow a vessel as soon as she hove in sight but the wind alone must be depended upon however the owner besought by the tears and entreaties of the wives and friends of the patriots in hiding finally concluded to make the attempt on the night of the twenty seventh day of december eighteen thirty seven a little vessel of one hundred feet in length quietly slipped from her moorings and sailed close along the shore of lake ontario it was a bright moonlight night still but very cold every mile or so she would back her mainsail and lay to at a signal of a light upon shore that a canoe might put off to the vessel bearing a patriot from his hiding in the forest to the side of the boat as yet no storm had come on to form the ice banks since the cold set in but there was no knowing what a day might produce in the way of a storm and the formation of ice banks some forty stops however and forty different canoes were paddled out to the vessel and forty patriots transferred panting for the land of liberty across lake ontario to the south of them sixty miles or so a fine sailing breeze blew off shore and hoisting sail and winging out mainsail and foresail nothing could bid fairer for a quick and prosperous voyage and the land of liberty seemed almost gained lying upon blankets in the bottom of the vessel were the patriots with the hatches closed down tight on account of the intense cold quickly and gaily the little vessel sped on with anxious hearts beating below morning revealed to their gaze the mouth of the river at oswego and the stars and stripes floating from the old fort near the river's outlet and a glorious sight indeed it was to the heavy-hearted patriots liberty at hand just before them where no one dare pursue then get up boys and let's get into port 
but the north wind which bore them so gaily and swiftly over the broad lake had driven all the floating drifting ice before it and wedged it firmly along the south shore for three miles between them and the land was this mass of floating ice and the little vessel refused to be driven through it backwards and forwards along its outer edge they tacked ever seeking an opening but finding none every means possible at their command they tried to force a passage but all failed the hearts of the patriots which a few hours before beat so joyously now sank within them oh we must put back again to canada and to prison never we will die first as the day wore on finally an athletic sailor declared he could and would force a passage and how was he to do it he boldly got out of the bowsprit climbed down on the cutwater chain and hung by his hands to the overhaul above the bowsprit a heavy sea at this time was running and ever and anon the sailor and bowsprit would be raised on the top of a wave many feet above the surrounding level of the water as the vessel would fall and bring the sailor down again to the water he would shove with all his might with his feet on the blocks of ice around him to force them to one side that the vessel could enter between the loose cakes perilous doubly perilous as this attempt was this undaunted water-dog stuck to his post until darkness set in and made any further effort in that direction an impossibility bitterly cold as it was with every wave freezing as it washed over the decks this hardy fellow did not feel the cold from the intense effort but perspired freely and hung on to the rope bare-handed his almost superhuman task only resulted in effecting a passage through the ice about a quarter of a mile all night they lay there among the ice and strange as it may seem slept soundly in their dreadful peril during the night the wind fell and the intensity of the cold increased at the first rays of the morning they were astir and found their little vessel firmly frozen in with a clear sheet of ice transparent and smooth two inches thick all around them over the vessel's side jumped our sailor of the previous night's adventure and found a firm footing all about the vessel quickly they realized that their only chance for life and safety lay in hurrying over the ice with all speed for the shore before a wind might arise and break up the ice frozen the night before the bulwarks of the vessel were torn off and split so as to form poles each man taking one but our sailor took instead a piece of board about ten feet long and eight inches wide away they started spreading out every man for himself carrying his pole in front of his breast step on the clear ice and keep off the hummocks sang out our sailor soon one disregarded the advice and down he went plump into the icy water beneath his pole however would catch the firm ice at the sides and kept his head above water then his nearest companion took hold of the submerged man's pole and pulled him out upon firm ice again immediately on getting out he was encrusted in a sheet of ice overcoats began to be thrown aside and also the grip sacks containing all the patriots valuables until the path was strewn with their effects every moment someone would break through the ice 
out of that devoted band of patriots all had gone down and been rescued and all of the crew too except one sailor who being lighter than the rest and more cautious where he stepped alone remained dry now the patriots one after another began to lose all heart and give up oh god and must i die here with the shore and liberty just in sight get up shouted john our sailor swearing at them the while and threatening to put them square under unless they got up and went on on the shore there were some hundreds of persons watching the efforts of that devoted band gesticulating to them and trying to move them to take heart and gain the shore other help they could not afford much as they desired to do so for the wind is so treacherous on these waters in midwinter that in a moment the ice might be broken and all lost john our hero however at last threatening to brain with his piece of board those who had given up finally got them on their feet again and a little nearer shore about three o'clock in the afternoon saw them within twenty rods of the shore and now the cheers and shouts of the crowd of sympathizers could be heard at last oh at last our troubles will be over and we will get ashore and their hopes arose once more but no oh dear no has god brought us through all these perils and hardships to die so near the shore anguish almost as great as death itself was stamped on the face of the most intrepid of that band all at once the wind had risen from the south and the ice began drifting into the lake already it had parted from the shore streak of ice and left a space of open water now seven feet wide jump it they could not because their clothes were frozen so hard that they could not spring and besides the ice on the other side of the open space was not thick enough to hold one alighting after the jump their last hope sank within them death stared them in the face their wives and friends in canada would see them no more every minute added to the width of the gulf of water between them and the shore ice when up came the sailor with the last laggard and in an instant threw his board over the open water and now run for your lives said he and they ran across the board every man feeling this to be his last chance and his last effort on shore at last tears hot and blinding ran down their cheeks while the crowd gathered around them and cheered lustily the sympathizers on shore conducted them to the bar-room of a hotel in which was a huge fireplace with an immense fire of logs blazing for their especial benefit it seems this bar-room was sunken below the surface of the earth a step and was floored with bricks quickly their icy clothes began to thaw and in a little time it is said the water melted from their clothes actually stood three inches deep over the bar-room floor we have to add that the little vessel was lost and became a wreck well it was that it was lost for a battery of artillery was stationed at the port whence it sailed with orders to fire on the vessel and take every man a prisoner when she came back had they been taken without a doubt they would all have been sent to botany bay as convicts for twenty or thirty years each as many others were who went away as young men and came back gray-haired broken-down old men scarcely knowing their own country after so long an absence 
as to the patriots they were all pardoned and invited to come home as we all know which they did many of them rising to high positions in canada in after years that this rebellion did great good to canada neither tories nor reformers now deny but it does seem hard that so many good and true men had to suffer so much to have their wrongs righted to-day canada is as free as any country under the sun i leave it to you reader to say if there could be a more joyful christmas at any place in america than the portion of it remaining to those patriots after they got on shore the industry is first in line represented in the illustration of the lumber-loading on page 172. The illustration on page 186 will give some idea of the scene of the adventure of the escaping patriots and the landing at Oswego, New York. The ill-fated industry drifted about on the inclement lake and was at last driven into a cove about Oak Orchard, New York there a land pirate cut the ship up and stole cables anchors and shrouds the following spring eighteen thirty eight john pickle and william annis at my father's instance went and found this freebooter a worthless fellow but married to a wealthy man's daughter upon the claim being made he was advised by legal men to settle it and thus avoid the penalty piracy in new york state is punishable by ten years state imprisonment his father-in-law paid one thousand one hundred dollars for the man's act and that is all my father ever got for a ship valued at quite eight thousand dollars at that day some years afterwards when in upper canada a rebellion losses bill was passed and became law it was thought that the loss of this ship would come under the meaning of this act as a very young man, I urged my father to put in his claim. No, my son, he said, if I was fool enough to risk my ship and my life in the business of the rebellion in midwinter, I deserved to lose it. No claim was ever put in for the lost ship, and even now, after the lapse of sixty-one years, I do not think it prudent to give the names of the passengers it carried on that eventful trip all of them came back to canada many were in high government positions afterwards had the government of the day in upper canada then captured that ship and its precious cargo it may be the map of canada would be different to-day i was in botany bay australia and in hobart tasmania in eighteen ninety six when fresh from reading the tales of marcus clark and balderwood I could not help thinking what untimely fate would have befallen the entire ship's company had they been captured and transported. Many persons were so hard-pressed by the military during the rebellion, even if not participants, that they fled in every way possible. One man, on November 15, 1837, stole a dugout pine canoe from my father and deliberately paddled alone across Lake Ontario, full sixty-five miles leaving port oshawa at ten p m and having a fine north breeze he made oak orchard due south at four p m the next day the prow of the canoe he had taken was rotted off but the paddler sitting in the stern with a stone between his feet 
by his own and the stone's combined weight succeeded in keeping the open end raised above the water this necessarily added much to the perils of the voyage it being perilous enough in the best of weather to paddle across the lake in an open boat john d smith before referred to as the owner of the mill at smith's creek now port hope was a man of means and being very stirring was influential at the time of the rebellion all the able-bodied men in the neighborhood were enrolled in mass at smith's creek the company was drawn up answering to their names as they were called the colonel stood at the head of the line listening to the names and responses as the word passed down the line these men were to march to york very shortly to be ready for any emergency john d smith happened along somehow whether designedly or not i cannot discover waiting he heard the name ephraim gifford called smith knew gifford well knew him to be a hard-working stay-at-home man a good chopper engaged in clearing the forest stepping up to the colonel smith said there colonel take out gifford and put in smadgers there smadgers is no good anyway he won't work and gifford will chop a place for fall wheat and raise a crop put in smadgers and smadgers was put in the ranks accordingly while gifford went away home to his chopping the times of the outbreak also brought tragedies home to the lives of many of the settlers losses which no money indemnity could replace or the bereaved ones forget thomas conant the author's grandfather happened on or about february fifteenth eighteen fifty eight to be walking alone on the kingston road about midway between oshawa and bowmanville it was quite common in those days for persons to walk or go on horseback the roads being usually very bad for wheeled vehicles he was an old man unarmed and proceeding about his ordinary business coming in his walk eastward towards bowmanville he saw a man named cummings sitting on his horse before the tavern door then situated on the south side of kingston road on lot twenty six in the second concession of darlington conant had not quite reached the hotel but clearly saw cummings as he sat on his horse partake of two stirrup cups when he started to ride on westward towards oshawa accosting him conant who knew him well said good day cummings drunk again as usual cummings who was a dragoon and a dispatch-bearer dreaded above all things to be reported drunk when carrying dispatches and fired up in an instant putting spurs to his steed he attempted to ride conant down but conant was too quick for him and caught the horse by the bridle as he approached whereupon cummings raised his sword and without a word of warning struck the old man on the head fracturing his skull death followed a few hours after coroner scott held an informal inquest but because the three witnesses of the murder were looking out of the tavern window through the glass of the window the evidence was not admitted and cummings went unpunished but the proverbial sword of damocles hung over him all the remainder of his days living about port hope he became a confirmed drunkard and at last fell under the wheels of a loaded wagon and was crushed to death 
such is the tragic story of the murder of the author's grandfather not a friend of his dared to utter a protest against the murderous deed or perversion of justice he was buried on the kingston road about four miles easterly from the murder scene on lot number six in the second concession of the township of east whitby do i blame the authorities of that day indeed i certainly do and with good reason but the fact is that a few persons who exercised the supreme authority as the rebellion waned used it most arbitrarily good came in the end and to-day upper canada is the peer of all self-governing countries and one which i love for its own sake why shouldn't i does it not enshrine the bones of my grandfather who fell a victim to family compact misrule although our country is almost too young to possess a stock of legends there are some tales and many local incidents that have been handed down from father to son as fireside tales at the beginning of this century the province was almost a vast wilderness with open spaces here and there cleared by the settler's axe even as late as eighteen twelve at the time of the american war we had only just begun to emerge as it were from the dark towering forests that were intersected by only the indian footpaths it is almost astounding when one stops to consider that even within the memory of those now living our province has been made our cities have been built our canals dug our forests subdued and ontario made a garden all well nigh within the compass of a man's lifetime when governor clinton of new york state first made the assertion that he would bring the waters of lake erie to albany and float a boat on their surface by means of the erie canal there are persons now living who said they would be willing to die when that was done but it has been done and these old persons in our midst so slow to believe seem not anxious to be hurried to abide by their wish even at this late day many a farm in ontario was paid for by money earned by canadians while working on that erie canal low as the wages were at the time it was cash and gained at a time when our resolute workers could not earn cash at home they brought it back to canada and laid the foundation of the prosperity which many canadian families now enjoy among the stories of my boyhood days is one of an episcopal church minister who came out from england to this province at a very early day and settled upon a farm a couple of miles from the church he neither was nor could be much of a farmer and never at any time let himself down to any abandon nor did he ever cast off his long clerical coat even when about his home or when tossing the fly in his trout stream a man of cultivated tastes he seemed literally to love the ease and quiet of a country life for him it was just one long holiday he had erected a substantial stone house on the bank of a trout stream which meandered through his farm in those days trout were plentiful and with his well-filled library and an ample income from england it is not to be wondered at that to him life was worth living he had married above him in england it appeared but on both sides it had been a genuine love match the irate father had banished his daughter from his presence 
which was the real cause of their domiciling in canada during the father's lifetime the annual stipend of three hundred pounds sterling came as regularly as the seasons went by and i leave each individual reader to judge for himself or herself if he could fancy a pleasanter position or a place in which life could be more fully enjoyed then fell to the lot of this person and his family the evil day came at length when the wife sickened and died and our parson scanned his father-in-law's will most closely there was some such ambiguous clause in it as that his daughter or her husband should receive the annuity of three hundred pounds sterling per year quote, as long as she remained above ground end quote. here was the parson's opportunity he procured a leaden coffin for the remains and outside of this wood was placed then with a double love one for his wife naturally and the other for her annuity he placed the casket leaning against the wall in an upstairs room all went on as before her death for he could annually swear that his wife was above ground another evil day came after the lapse of a few years when the parsonage was found to be in flames neighbors gathered as they will of course at such times and were anxious to render any assistance possible during the progress of the fire the parson walked to and fro among the persons gathered with his clerical coat still upon him beseeching all and everybody to save his wife his whole soul seemed so wrapped in the saving of his wife's remains that he heeded and cared not for any other loss importunity however could not stay the elements in their mad career and as the fire progressed it caught the corpse in its embrace and with a dull thud the leaden casket burst and all was exposed to the fury of the element persons who as boys were at the fire say to this day and stoutly aver it to be true that when the coffin burst the blue flames shot up into the air in a straight jet for forty feet as if mocking the parson for his solicitude and as a judgment upon him for desecrating his wife's remains by leaving them so long uninterred be that as it may i am not in a position to form an opinion and will not attempt to judge but i do know from indisputable testimony that when the next year rolled around and the time came for the yearly income to be received it did not come nor did it ever come again for the parson was unable to swear that his wife was still above ground there came to upper canada about the year eighteen o three a young american strong of muscle and cunning of skill as a blacksmith for a few years he followed his trade and prospered well for blacksmiths in those days were few and far between and he being skilful soon amassed quite a little property just as the war broke out he established a little log hotel on the travelled highway between kingston and toronto where all the military must necessarily pass in those days as the war went on with its preparations this american did a roaring trade and became quite a personage in the land drafted persons while on their way to toronto invariably stopped at his log hostelry and to some of those of american origin like himself he became communicative over his cups 
and explained that he had learned his trade in one of the state's prisons, and that as soon as he was at liberty he came to Canada. Among those who passed and repassed during those stirring days in our country's history, his place became noted for its good cheer. A stage occasionally essayed to make its way along this highway, and, one day during the war, it left at this man's log hostelry a strange passenger. He was a man past middle age, dressed in clothing plain but of excellent quality, and was from the time of his landing at once installed as a guest at the log hotel. A couple of strongly bound trunks were the man's only baggage. As the days and nights flew by, this strange guest was never averse to gather in the general bar-room and join in the ordinary gossip of the neighborhood with the assembled neighbors. He was, in fact, genial, well-disposed, evidently well-read, possessed a rich and inexhaustible fund of anecdote, and was ever the life of the bar-room gathering. Let the least allusion to politics, however, be made, and the stranger would shut his mouth as quickly as if his jaws were those of a trap when sprung by the tread of its intended victim upon its trenches. Then he would seek the solitude of his room, and be seen no more for the evening. His days were spent with his gun or rod among the forests or along the streams, and many savory additions to the hotel fare were made by his voluntary contributions to it as a result of his sport. Gradually and almost imperceptibly he came to be kindly regarded by those who knew or supposed they knew him. The English tongue he spoke fairly well, but now and again a little foreign accent would crop out. This he always instantly corrected when he bethought himself of his error. All attempts to discover who he was were unavailing. Whether he was a Frenchman, a German, or a Russian was always conjectured, but never transpired. Our transient guest did not in any way change his ordinary mode of life. During every fine day he followed his dog with his gun, and if he felt any uneasiness at his quiet life, or endured the least chagrin at his expatriation, he was exceedingly careful not in any wise to let it be known. To all that part of Upper Canada he became at length an enigma and a general theme of conjecture as to who he was. Bets were wagered as to his origin, but owing to the sphinx-like lips of this strange man, such bets had always to be withdrawn again, for there was no possibility of verifying any decision either way. He paid his bills to the landlord regularly, and left no cause of complaint against him. One day, after he had been at the hostelry upwards of five years, the stage deposited at this log hotel an officer from the army of old France. He was every inch a soldier in dress, in looks, and action. Having partaken of his dinner, he called the landlord to his side, and asked if he had ever met a man of such and such a description. Now, to the landlord's infinite surprise, the description this officer gave minutely corresponded with the mysterious stranger, but well knowing that the man had ever studiously avoided being recognized, he repudiated any knowledge of any such person. In the evening, when the man returned, he told him of the French officer and the inquiries he had made. He answered not a word, but ate his supper and retired to his room. 
on the following morning when the stage came along going in the direction whence the french officer came and in the opposite way to which he was bound our strange guest came out of his room and asked to have his trunks strapped on the stage with as few words as possible he paid all his reckonings with the landlord quietly bade him and his household good-bye climbed into his seat and was gone for ever nothing was ever heard of him again he vanished from that part of upper canada as suddenly as he came into it where he came from or where he went to it is probable no one will ever know it was supposed by some that this person had been of napoleon the great's generals and that after the defeat of waterloo he had seized all he could find in his division military chest when napoleon had given himself up on board the belle he got on board another vessel and sailed for america and had come away from the seaboard to this remote place to avoid the probability of any one meeting and recognizing him and that this french officer whose arrival and inquiries had caused his departure was upon his track to wreak some vengeance upon him either for the public wrong he had committed or it might be a private one of so delicate a nature as to be without the cognizance of the law be that as it may the man went as he came and left no sign an unsolved enigma to all with whom he had come in contact while in the wilds of canada End of chapter six